And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. Good, great, grand, wonderful. I have a bad feeling about this. What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? It's the good, the bad, and the what? Lost your train of thought, didn't I? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The What, the show in which we dissect what makes a movie good, bad, or other within a certain theme, category, subgenre, or filmography. I'm Chris Thomas. And I'm Ron Oliver. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? You paused there like you were shocked that you made it through the intro I on the first try. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm absolutely shocked. I said, like, full transparency, I'm like, this is going to take me, like, four or five tries. And I got it on the first and had to take a minute to be like, what What did I fuck up that just didn't register? What did I run through? But, but no, we'll, we'll keep it. Keep you it did all it. in. Keep it. That's staying in the episode. Um, no, I'm, doing, I'm doing all right. I'm looking forward to uh, discussing our topic uh, today. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which it went a little bit different than I had imagined it when I initially, uh, picked this topic, but, uh, we're going to be talking about comedy Westerns today. Um, mainly because I think it's, um, it's a fascinating subgenre uh, of the Western, right? And I think that, um, it's, it's really hard to pull it off, I feel like, um, just because it's like, it, it, you know, and especially when we get into our, our what movie where it's like you have this time and a place where it was like, by all accounts, a pretty like horrible, horrendous like time to live and in in all facets of life and to sort of like take that and make, you know, turn it into a comedic effect is like mm-hmm. kind of a tightrope. Um, and so I, I feel like if you're able to pull it off, it's one of those things that is super, super successful. Um but I'll lay out the picks, and I think we'll just get into it. Um, you know, a couple caveats. Um, actually, I'll just lay them down, and then we'll I'll, I'll get sure. into them. So, uh, for the good on this episode, I have chosen Cat Baloo from 1965, directed by Elliot Silverstein. For the bad, I have chosen Almost Heroes from 1998, directed by Christopher Guest. And for the what, I have chosen A Million Ways to Die in the West from 2014, directed by Seth MacFarlane. Um, so I'll, I'll give the caveats. One of them I did say at the end of the last episode that we were not going to do Blazing Saddles as Blazing Saddles is the, the high watermark of this too subgenre. It is what? too good for good, bad, what it is the greatest Western comedy. It's one of the greatest comedies of all time. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. So I feel like putting that is like super unfair. Um, yeah, it's fucked up. <laughs> but the second caveat is the good was initially going to be city slickers. Um, but in my, I went to go rent it, uh, the day that I sat down to start watching these movies. Um, and you can't rent this movie digitally. You can buy it for fourteen ninety nine. Um, but we, you know, when you listen to our show, which thank you for supporting us, um, we want you to be able to watch these movies along with us. So I'm not going to make somebody pay fourteen ninety nine to do it. Like, right. If it's a what movie and it fits the category, it's one thing. Maybe what's are a little hard to find, but a movie like City Slickers, like that, should be easily accessible. So right. we made a pivot to Cat Baloo, and then lastly, the bad and the what were initially swapped 
um, when I conceived this episode. And we'll get into the reasonings when we get to the movies, but after rewatching the two of them, it, it felt more appropriate uh, to to swap them. Um, but we'll start with Cat Baloo, um, which I will I will be honest. Uh, this was a this was a bit of a hail mary pass. I actually uh, picked this based on on my wife's love of this movie. Um, I didn't really have a lot of familiarity with it outside of you know I knew what the movie was, I knew what it was about, but I didn't really have you know I never I had never seen it, so I sort of took a gamble based on the sort of reputation and you know it was up for a bunch of Oscars in 1965. Um, it won one for Lee Marvin, one Best Actor uh, mm-hmm. for it, and it's. As far as I can tell, I mean, it's it's definitely one of the earlier Western comedies. I mean, yes. McClintock might have been a little bit before it, but it's definitely an earlier one. It certainly predates Blazing Saddles. Um, and so I, I thought it would be interesting. Plus, it's just, you know, we, we got to do a movie older than the 1970s <laughs> at some point. Maybe do some more as we go along. But uh, so I took a risk because my other sort of Hail Mary pass for the good was Shanghai Noon which I remember mm. really liking, but I haven't seen it in a very long time. So I don't know, but um, right. I guess this was a first time watch for both of us, but I will kick it over to you um, and ask, what did you think of cat Baloo? Uh, it's good. I, I, I'm worried about how much I'm going to have to say about it on the, the episode, just because it's, it's good in that classic movie, good type of way. I, I don't know if uh, Kate is the same as Megan in this regard, but Megan loves like musicals and she loves watching older movies. She loves Audrey Hepburn and all that stuff. And yeah, so there, there's a lot of times where she'll sit down and I'm going to put on a, a, a classic like singing in the rain or um, I'm going to put on my uh, fair lady, my fair lady, a funny girl. Or, or And so it's like, okay, great. And I'll sit and I'll watch it and I'll enjoy it. But by the time the movie's over, I'm like, I get it. I respect it. I know why it's good. However, I'm not going to add that to my my repertoire. I'm not going to probably revisit it. I just I understand it and I respect it, and I kind of feel the same way about Cat Blue, which is not a, a dig on the movie at all. It's just it, it's something that I understand and I respect, but it, it's not it's not Blazing Saddles, or it's not something that's going to stand out as uh, this is an amazing Western comedy. However, I was going to make the point that I think it is a. Uh, it, it's a really interesting sort of time or like a transition period in Hollywood where in the golden age where Westerns were the shit, everybody was making Westerns. Like they had Clint Eastwood's whole career, John Wayne's whole career. So this turn into them becoming more comedic and, and it didn't quite get to the level of slapstick. You know, he didn't have the three stooges out there quite doing it, but right. the it, it's still, it, they're kind of taking the piss on, what was a mainstay for Hollywood and for a lot of filmmakers up until this point. So it, it is kind of a, a neat little like peer back into this time period to see that slow transition start to happen where Westerns were losing their serious audience appeal and they had to start injecting other genres into it to get the audience in to watch another Western. Yeah, totally. No, I think you're 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 spot on there because the that in the golden age it was westerns and musicals, which were like mm-hmm. the two two of the biggest genres, and now they're like I, I wouldn't say two of the most struggling genres, but they've sort of had to incorporate into other things even as time has progressed. Um, you know, like most most neo westerns are like um, 
you know, there, there's something like No Country for Old Men. Um, you know, not mm-hmm. that not that traditional westerns aren't made now; they are, but there's few and far between. Or something like Logan, uh, which is like it's a comic book movie, but it's a western. Like, you know, it's so it's like they're they're still sort of genre bending. And this was, you know, this was '65, so we weren't quite to like the new Hollywood with like Coppola and Scorsese and no. De Palma like yet. Um, but like it was on the precipice, and it was definitely like heading towards that. The industry was in trouble because the Golden Goose movies, which were, you know, westerns and musicals, were not doing as well um, until right. the, and that, of course, led to the, the, you know, the sort of gritty 70s in air quotes, where they're just like, well, you know, people are interested in these movies, and after the Vietnam War ended, and people were into things that were, you know, super, like, jovial or anything like that, and so it's like they just gave people like Scorsese and Spielberg, and it's like, here, here's some money, go make, yeah, <laughs> they go seem to like, they seem to like what you make, so go make your movies, um, so... Um, the right call but uh no you're a couple things uh for one kate is similar but i i'm honestly similar in that way too like i like going back and filling in my blind spots of like classical sure. hollywood movies that i haven't seen and so like filling in cat blue was uh was a treat and i think before i go further because we we do this a lot where we just dive right into it i have a synopsis written out i should probably right. read that yes. and then we'll kind of go off of it um so I have here aspiring school teacher Catherine Ballou, played by Jane Fonda, returns to her hometown of Wolf City, Wyoming, where her father Frankie, John Marley, uh, his ranch is being threatened by a shady development organization to make way for the railroad coming to town. She enlists legendary gunslinger but current drunk Kid Shaleen, played by Lee Marvin, to protect her family's estate from ruthless, noseless gunslinger Tim Strawn, who is also played by Lee Marvin. After her father's murder, murder Catherine Ballou, now under the name Cat becomes an outlaw and begins rubbing rubbing jeez i can't talk today rubbing <laughs> the finances of the development company in an attempt to strong arm the company into admitting fault in her father's murder um which is funny like i described that that doesn't sound like a comedy like that actually sounds like the plot right. of any given sort of revenge western that you would find just on the nose but it's like the movie's got an odd tone and and I didn't quite know how to place it through a lot of the movie, other than the fact that it's like it won me over sort of by the end of it. Um, but it's like it's really interesting because like the movie starts with the Columbia Pictures logo that mm-hmm. then turns into like an animated uh, uh, woman with the guns in her holsters and firing it off, and uh, you have the, uh, the you have the probably what is the funniest part of the movie, which is the. Uh, the musical narration of the movie, which is uh, Nat King Cole and Stubby K, who are singing like the Ballad of Cat Baloo. They're sort of like the Greek chorus uh, going through. Um, and I, that was also a joy, too, is like, because I know this is a beloved movie. So I liked seeing almost direct lines to not necessarily Western comedies, but even like contemporary broad comedies. Like, I don't know about you, but their musical narration reminded me of the guys from There's Something About Mary, <laughs> who were mm-hmm. narrating throughout the movie. Or when Lee Marvin, uh, uh, when Kid Shaleen version of Lee Marvin comes to town and he's in the back of a wagon, just like in a box, just totally like five o'clock shadow, hung over as all hell. Um, His glory day is clearly behind him and they, they, they have him, you know, they set up a bunch of targets for him to shoot and he can't 
can't hit it at all and he's like you know i just he's like i just need a little nip can i have a little nip to try and, and do it and then he has a, like a whole monologue and he hits every single target dead with dead bang accuracy mm-hmm. it reminds me of the scene in beer fest when they go to get uh very <laughs> very badranath and he can't yeah he can't do quarters or whatever and then he, get out of here yeah exactly. get out of here. <laughs> but then he comes back to the bar and hits every uh right pool ball better when I'm drunk. yeah better when i'm drunk yeah exactly which is kind of like uh, which is, I, I think also makes to, to me, Lee Marvin, like a big, like as much as Jane Fonda is good in this movie, mm. like seeing him. Cause I'm like, I know him. He's, you know, from like, you know, tough guy cinema, right? Like he's sure. just, he's like, he's one of those faces. So to see him play like a total, like comedic drunk, um, and playing against type was like really entertaining, but then sort of seeing his arc sort of show up for the movie and see that he's the sort of like, he's almost like the he's almost like the bridge between like in older Western and this sort of like comedic Western where it's like, he's the, his days are behind him. He sort of realizes what's in store in the present and sort of like cleans up his act and sort of like rolls with it. And, um, I, I found that to be almost like an interesting, like direct sort of like critique, not necessarily critiqued, but like commentary on the movie itself, which I found interesting. Yeah, I, and I I loved his role personally. I mean, uh, as the the no nose dude, um, he's not in the movie very much. But yeah, uh, I he's very serious and dramatic in a lot of the scenes that he's in. And so like mm-hmm. the comedy that derives from him is when he gets drunk and he gets silly. Yes, and he's kind of like teetering around or like um, the end of the movie where he's like asleep on his horse and his horse is also asleep and there's just like leaned up against a wall like. There, there's stuff like that that are, are like the bumbling drunk but when he's actually like around and doing his gunslinger stuff like he's he's very introspective and pensive and he's like passing down life lessons to this young gang of ruffians that are with him um but sort of flying by the seat of his pants i love this scene when uh they go into the bar um it's like this outlaw bar and everybody that's there is sort of like hanging like laying low because they're wanted by the law and he goes up there and tries to get a drink from the bartender who, um, who's played, uh, is it uh, Arthur Honeycutt? Yes. Um, yes, yes, yes. Who's playing Butch Cassidy, who basically tells him, like, uh, like he's like, you want to have a drink for old time's sake? And he's like, old time's sake? That means you don't have any money. Like, so, no, I don't think we're going to have that drink. And he, like, tries to pawn off his guns. He's like, nobody wants your guns. Like, there, there are scenes where he makes himself look like a fool and the a4 mentions like i can't hit a goddamn thing until i have a nip but then like he has a whole redemptive arc where he like kicks the booze and like he throws on like the suit like for one last hurrah um he like dresses to the nines and does a shave and and a bath and the whole thing and it's on it like it's dramatically touching to like see him pick himself up again and and become the 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 gunslinger of legend which is like you have that in this movie that is still trying to take the piss and be comedic when it can. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's, 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 it's a, it's a have its cake and eat it too situation. And I think yes. it does, it mostly succeeds at that, but you're right. Cause it's like, there's, there's heavy, you know, dramatic subject matter, not only his arc in the movie, but there's the death of Capaloo's dad. Um, yes. you know, there's like serious subject matter and, and you mentioned maybe not as serious, but you mentioned like he does the, the bath and the whole nines. Kate pointed out, uh, be, uh, it, cause at some point when they'd rob the first train of like the Wyoming, uh, like 
the, the development company who's trying to take the farm and the the guy who's like the head of it is in a bath and mm-hmm. then like later on lee marvin's the bath kate's like this movie's got a weird thing about baths <laughs> like there's a lot of baths in this movie but, but even um, that scene when they confront that guy he's like it's not like what are you doing here get out like they have like a casual conversation with this man in a bath and so yes. like it's like oddball weird situational comedy like that and of course like when the train uh gets unhitched and there's a whole um sort of pratfalls of him like and he falls out of the tub and everything like that so it gets silly while maintaining this serious through line that still is impactful and it, it, it you can take it seriously exactly well it starts silly and and that was the other sort of thing i wanted to sort of applaud the movie for i i i think that the movie I'm going to say relatively. I'm going to say for 1965, relatively. It's a pretty progressive Western. Again, relatively speaking, there's some things that are totally, like, not okay in it. But if you look, like, holistically at the genre and the era, you're like, okay, some of the things they do in this are actually, like, respectable or at least a step in the right direction. But but I wanted to note, like, you know, it starts silly because... As Cat Ballou is returning to her town in Wyoming, we see, um, you know, a man who's, he, he, I, it's, I still don't know if he is actually drunk or if he's pretending to be drunk, but they're staging a, a you know, a, an escape from the train. And uh, I, I forget the character's name, but they're, they're like, a, um, uh, it's a, it's a Clay Boone and Jed. Um, and uh, they, one of them, they're like, they're like nephew and uncle, I think is what they say at, at one point um but like they're trying to escape and um they one of them hides in in cat Baloo's, like car carriage and he's like he's like one step away from the like tex avery like wolf cartoon with like the eyes bulging out of his head and being like oh like mm-hmm. it's like one step away from that uh, uh of, of this sort of like over sexualization like coming on too strong like almost yeah. like a Pe- Pepe Le Pew type actually would probably right, be a yeah. better comparison in, in that. Um, but like, you kind of think that these guys are going to be these like sort of hard criminals and like come to find out like later in the movie. Cause you know, he, she enlists their help in addition to um, Lee Marvin to save the ranch, but they're, they're completely almost useless in their entirety. Yeah. They're like, Oh yeah, we've never fired a gun. Oh, we've never done this. Like they're, they're, they're kind of wimps and she's the sort mm-hmm. of like, take charge like person who sort of like you know especially when her father dies and they decide to become outlaws it's like she's the one sort of leading that charge they're sort of along mm-hmm. for the ride so i found that interesting the other element that is i think mostly good is is um is the the ranch hand uh who's who's uh, jackson two bears who's played mm-hmm. by uh tom nardini who's who's native american and he, he is, you know, he's treated as a complete, like, equal to them, uh, both in the gang and, and on the, the, the farm. And, you know, telling Capaloo that, like, your dad was one of the people who hired me, gives me a living wage and, and all this. And, and he shares the screen just enough. Uh, it's a little rough. They're, they, like, they go to a dance <laughs> at one point, uh, if you recall that scene. And uh, they sort of, like, crash it. And then I think Capaloo makes, like, a, like a Native American call with her mouth. And it's like, okay. Didn't, uh, yeah, didn't, and you're like, 1965? It, yeah, I mean, you, it's, it's one of those things where you're like, Ugh. I was like, there, there's worse. There's way worse from the, in these movies. Mm-hmm. And given the, that character's arc and its play, his place in the movie, it's like, 
mm, it's like I'll moderately forgive it, but it's just one of those things. They, they did worse in Friday the Thirteenth, and there was no Native Americans in that movie. So yeah, that's actually a valid point. <laughs> There's some real insensitive shit in there. So yeah, like insensitive shit happens in movies all the time, and so I think I think for Jane Fonda to do an insensitive thing but at the expense of like a friend that's in the movie and has equal representation and is otherwise treated very well right you're like like you can you can kind of grit your teeth and be like it's 1965 i i get it nobody was having these conversations then right you can't you can't retroactively dock the movie um agree too no, bad you're right you're um, right <laughs> You're right. But, it's just uh, one of those things noting, like if for for oh, anybody, it's <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things noting because it's like everyone's got their sort of like line, right? So it's like you right. can't, we can't discount the movies of the past because of something that I'm just like warning people of that. But at the same yes. time, yeah, again, 1965, the the movie is largely agreeable in sort of like what it what it's, um, you know, compared to some at the time. So oh, for sure, credit. And I mean, like, there's movies, there's movies that that. Uh, you know, the for the time excuse doesn't like doesn't work. Like Breakfast at Tiffany's, yeah, uh, it's a beloved movie, but uh, <laughs> it even was it not acceptable by any stretch of the imagination. Wasn't in any acceptable era. at the time, let alone <laughs> no. now. So yes, right. yeah. So like it by like that measure, it's not Breakfast at Tiffany's. So uh, I, I wouldn't go into this movie being too yeah. worried about that stuff. I think this is a, a it's a it's a very enjoyable movie. It's a very fun movie, even like yes. given the dark subject matter. I love Jane Fonda in this movie. Um, she's she's having such a good time, and her character is uh, is just crazed enough. Um, I mean, like I love the the gang that she enlists. Like you said, like they're all like sort of cowards uh, in a way, and they want to run away and make a life someplace else. But she, of course, is there for revenge. And I love the whole deal about it's her idea to rob the train she's like well i have an idea oh what's your idea we'll rob a train and it's like <laughs> zero to a hundred like no one has even talked about holding up a bank or doing anything like that she's like we'll just rob a train and everyone collectively except for leave marvin who is drunk uh are like what like 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 no one can understand what she's talking about and she has to bully them into it by throwing rocks at them um, until they're like, like, fine, we'll do whatever you say. Just quit pelting us with rocks. And it's, it's just, it's absurdist stuff like that. But it's, it's robbing a train is not an unknown thing in a Western movie. So it makes sense in the context of this being a Western, but the way that they go about doing it and bringing it into the world is so absurdist and so silly that it gets a laugh out of you. So like it's hitting the Western mainstays while still staying lighthearted enough to where this tale of uh, you know uh, murder and revenge and swiddling and 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 uh, I, I don't know what it's called when you murder your brother but there's like a, a sibling side or whatever like there's serious shit that's in there but none of it comes across to the point where you feel like you're watching unforgiven like right it's you're having fun the whole time exactly you're right 100 percent. though i wouldn't mind watching unforgiven uh because unforgiven that'll be great. on a different episode <laughs> yeah eventually we'll get to maybe like revisionist western or like ones that sort yeah. of put the nail or, in the yeah, in the Taylor genre westerns yeah yeah, yeah yeah definitely that's that's a that's a high watermark for sure um, oh yeah absolutely but yeah cat baloo like you said it's a it's a really fun time like like i said as far as like the western comedy like i said at the top it's such a hard genre to pull off so the fact that this movie is like it's not 
it's comedic. It's not maybe overtly comedic, like the way that Blazing Saddles is, or even yeah, it's not Mel Brooks. <laughs> no, or even or even our next two movies in terms of what they're yeah. trying to do. Right. Its success is totally up to you know up to your own subjective viewpoint. But but like it's not even like the next two movies. It's it's pretty like it's pretty balanced i i would say but it's like it's it's right. it's light-hearted uh and i think you, you were the one who pointed that out and i i think it's definitely worth watching it's out there unlike city slickers you can rent this for a reasonable yes. price so um check it out if you haven't especially if you uh you know looking to fill some of your classical movie blind spots it's mm-hmm. it's uh it's a beloved movie you see a man with his eyes set and his head on a bias like his teeth anchored like a mule well, you know, you just soon hang your guts on a fence post to say great day in the morning. Well, you're a gunfighter. Proud and feared of nothing. Because ain't nothing walk on this earth you got to bow down to. Hmm? Not a man don't tip his hat. Not a boy don't know his name. And ain't no place he ain't welcome. Because when the gunfighter around, trouble just naturally stay away. Huh? Folks, then, how you, kid? How you doing, kid? Come on in, have a pitcher of milk and some gingerbread. Or come up on the porch and cool your heels for a while. It's hot outside. Because nobody don't make no fun of a friend of Kid Chalene. Miss Ballou, I am here. I've never seen a man get through a day so fast. Um, what's not a beloved movie? <laughs> I was, I was waiting. I was, I was trying to see like where where can we where can we get the segue? Where is it coming? And it's there. It's it's almost it's, heroes. Yeah. Uh, which man, I I like like I mentioned at the top. This was initially in the what category specifically because I remembered I'd only seen this movie once when I was a kid, but I remembered liking it, and I think it was just because I was just happy to see Chris Farley and anything right. because he just didn't have a lot of movies that he had a leading role in, um, you know, due to his early unfortunate passing. So I, I think I was just happy to see him in whatever. But whew, boy, oh boy, rewatching this, you know, 20 years later or however long since I watched it last, man, this is rough. This is a rough movie. Um, and on many levels. Um, oh, yeah. It, it, why don't I read the synopsis? I'll ask yes. you what you thought, and then I'll, I'll I'll deliver some anecdotes because we, it's interesting at least how this movie came together, and it's more interesting than anything in the movie. So, I think we should pivot mostly to discussing about that because this movie is yeah, woefully sure. unfunny. But <laughs> the uh, the synopsis that I have here is uh, in 1804, clueless aristocrat cat not aristocat i am having a hard time talking today i'm gonna rewind that in 1804 yeah we'll talk about the aristocrat talking about culturally insensitive things in older movies um yeesh yikes um in 1804 clueless aristocrat leslie edwards played by matthew perry envious of the credit that lewis and clark get for their expeditions hires expert tracker bartholomew hunt played by chris farley and a ragtag group of explorers to get to the pacific before the famed lewis and clark um that's pretty much the movie it's just a setup for gags that don't land um you know what sorry i'm gonna ask you what did you think about almost heroes on a rewatch you did you watch this when you were younger or is this i, first I time saw when i was it? younger and it was okay. the same thing where like i i i still to this day adore tommy boy fucking love tommy boy i love chris yes. farley um just in general 
Um, so yeah, as a kid watching this and just seeing Farley make noises and, and be crazy and do stuff, that was enough to carry me through the movie. So then very much like you, when you said it was the what I was like, yeah, it's probably doesn't hold up, but I mean, Farley's in it. So, and it, it's that same thing. There have been interviews with, with, I mean, Sandler and Spade and, and like all of the cast that worked around Farley back in the SNL days that they said they would write a script. They would do a table read of it and they couldn't get it to work. And so then somebody in the room would just inevitably go, go get Farley. And they would just put Farley into one of the roles and then suddenly the skit would work because Farley is a madman and he brings everybody else up around him to where they need to now perform at that level to make it funny. If your movie that is a comedy, that is a like slapstick situational comedy that has Chris Farley in the leading role is 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 not only unfunny... Like it, it, it circles back around to being upsetting because it like it's 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 assaulting you with attempts at jokes that are so like they don't land at all. Or, or if they do land, it's like a punch in the mouth because like, like nothing in this movie works to its benefit at all. And that's with Chris Farley doing his best. But like there's just no material for him to work with there at all. Exactly. I mean, you, you you pretty much hit the nail on the head. This is a recipe of, like, how so much talent, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera, yes. which we got to get into here, how it could go so wrong. So, this movie's directed by Christopher Guest, and if I did a top ten of my favorite comedies of all time, without question, uh, This Is Spinal Tap and Waiting for Guffman would make the list with Best in Show Waiting in the Wings. Like, I adore yeah. Christopher Guest. think he's one of the funniest damn filmmakers that we have. Um, and so you have Christopher Guest and you have you had a script. Apparently this was a hot, like, blacklist script when it came out. Really? Things get lost in the translation so it's very, it's possible. It's totally possible. Um, this was from this from Denise Denovi, who was the producer of this movie, that basically said the script was was hot, um, and but it was more like almost like British humor, like a Black Adder style. I think was her quote, um, if you'd ever seen that that British show. So it had right. that sort of like where it's like kind of Monty Python esque, like a little bit, like maybe a, okay. a, a sort of bridge between like Monty Python and what would be like I don't know like garth Marenghi's dark place like somewhere so find <laughs> somewhere in between those two like decades like black adder was that or like uh the mighty boosh you know something like that okay. so it had that apparently had that style of humor it was a hot script the screenwriters had the same agent as uh steve odekirk uh who uh did a bunch of things but probably most famously to us as the director of kung pao enter the fist yes um but he did he worked with jim carrey at the time because he did I know he directed the second Ace Ventura. He might have written the first one. I'm not 100% sure on that. I didn't do my research there. Okay. But because they had the same agent, he was able to get the script shopped around. And so it was a hot script. And uh, Turner bought it. And um, they got Christopher Guest to do it because they believed that much in the script. Um, they got Farley. Um, and they got... They wanted, initially for Matthew Perry's role, who we have to sidebar for a second... And I won't mince word. Matthew Perry is terrible in this Awful. movie, just terrible. And I don't totally want to blame him necessarily, but he's just like hung out to dry and just does not fit in this movie. One he's, bit. 
He's Chandler with a, a really spotty, comes and goes, terrible British accent. Yes. Well, they looked into British actors to play the part. The Their number one choice was Hugh Laurie, um, who at the time was only, like, big in the UK. Like, he wasn't right. known in the US. Um, like, House wasn't out. I don't even think he was in the Stuart Little movies. I remember that, but I don't think I don't think Stuart Little was out yet. Uh, no, you know, that no. this was ninety six. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this movie filmed in ninety six. It came out right. in ninety eight, which is another antidote we'll get to. So they wanted Hugh Laurie, and then uh, but they um, decide you know decided he wasn't big enough a name, and then they offered it to Hugh Grant and Bill Murray, and they both turned it down. So then they went down the line and got Matthew Perry, which. Is a shame. I'm not even the biggest Hugh Grant fan, but he would have fared much better. Oh, in, yeah. in the role, um, because he he can play that sort of charming buffoon, you know, like which charming is... buffoon and and legitimately perturbed by the yes. situation that's going on. Uh, Matthew Perry at this point is still in the height of Friends, and he can't turn that um, smarmy. I'm smarter than everyone else in the room. Uh, can't get caught with my pants down. Sarcastic, like attitude off. Yes. Like, and so, like, when he should be the buffoon, he's very much like, uh, what are you doing? What's going on here? And, it, and it's just like, it doesn't it doesn't play that well. You need to be caught off guard, and he's not. Yes. And so then he just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's like, it's throwing jokes at a brick wall. Yeah, at, at the bare minimum, because he's doing Chandler, is he needed to be Joey, basically. Because yes. Joey's the sort of buffoon. That, that's why he works well in that ensemble, right? It's because he, he, Joey and Chandler and Ross are all different personality types, and so they can play off each other easily. But, right. like, um, and granted, this movie should have that, but it just, he, he just, he's hung out to dry, and I think that... Part of the other reason, too, what I found fascinating is, like, this movie was initially more of an ensemble movie, uh, was initially it, which makes sense given Christopher yes. Guest's repertoire. Though the other thing, and maybe sometimes this just doesn't work, Christopher Guest's movies are, like, semi-scripted, you know, because he works with his group of actors who are very, very good at improv, improv comedy. So it's like they have a direction of where the scene's supposed to go, but you have people like eugene levy and Catherine o'hara like completely like making stuff up as they go along and it's mm -hmm. funny because they know how to do that versus like actually following a scripted like i thought of like like sasha baron cohen doing the dictator which is like mm. was fucking terrible after like borat <laughs> and bruno because this is like because it was like a scripted movie and it's like right. with actors and i was like oh god this is like not working at all um and, and eugene levy is in this movie he is and he's one of the lo and behold he's one of the funnier parts that's not chris farley okay. in the movie because yeah. he's doing a weird french accent and he's sort of just like you know he's making up his lines as he's going along comedic expressions he knows how to like ham it up and oh like, absolutely really play for the camera like yeah eugene yeah Levy's great he eugene levy is a a plus plus in everything he's oh, in yeah. he any bad movie and this is make, make no mistake this is a bad movie eugene levy shows up you're like okay life isn't so bad because <laughs> yeah, there's eugene a levy's here right away yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah so it was more an ensemble movie and then i think a couple things happened from the time this movie shot to the time that it actually hit screens um mm. you know like a, uh so i mean number number one i mean number one with the biggest thing was chris farley passing away this movie came mm -hmm. out six months after he passed away it shot over a year before he passed away um which like 
I kind of thought, and you know, you should never assume what people are going through, even though Farley's sort of last days have been pretty well documented at this point. But I kind of thought when it first started, I was like, oh man, Farley just seems like in rough, rough shape, you know? Um, and maybe he was, but you know, come to find out that this wasn't even in the sort of like rough last days of his life. I was like, maybe this is but just he's, the he's movie. at his heaviest in, yeah. in this movie, like compared to like even Tommy boy and stuff like that. Like he's, he's definitely in, in knowing where he ends up two years from this, the point of this movie you can see the road that he's on right. when you're watching this. It's true. It's true. But then it's also the, the standpoint of also the movie is hanging him out to dry on top of that fact. He's just got nothing to work with. They're like, just do your thing. He's um, trying. And he's trying. And that was the other thing to, to note. Probably This probably had to factor in, because the movie came out after he, he passed away, the reason the movie took so long to actually make it to our eyeballs was because they put the movie, they shelved it because uh, Turner was merging with Time Warner. So they shelved the movie um, and we're going to release it after the merger. And then like the merger happened and then Chris Farley passed away. So what had happened too, and the movie, even in its full form, may not have been working, but Chris Farley's assistant um, was like quoted after the fact because they cut this movie significantly they cut it from an ensemble movie to more of a buddy movie, but there's no chemistry between Farley and Matthew Perry. Like there's it, no buddy. it doesn't, there's no buddy <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't work. And so, uh, I think his quote was they cut, they cut other people's scenes first, Matthew Perry's scenes second, Chris Farley's scenes never. So sometimes what you see not only is like wherever, you know, Farley is in his personal life, but also you you took the things out that he's working from so if you take out the things that he's working from he just is flailing out there the, right. the other movie i thought of um i really hate to bring this up because i don't i don't want i don't want to get spammed by all sides of the internet but i Uh-oh. i thought of i thought of the 2016 ghostbusters a lot while watching this movie um a movie okay a movie that i actively wanted to be very good um with a filmmaker i do like because i like bridesmaids and i like spy uh from paul mm-hmm. feig um and paul feig also like guest is more of an improv like they, they have sort of a direction and they just sort of go with it um and watching a, a movie that's supposed to have more of a plot and is pg-13 as opposed to an r um which is another thing get like with like you know feig's movies and then like christopher guest movies they're usually rated r or they have the freedom to be so this is also pg-13 and it's just like watching people who are super super talented flail and flop on the screen to try and make it work and it doesn't work is like this Mm -hmm. is one of the most depressing things to to sit through and i thought of that a lot while watching this movie i'm like there's so much funny people in this movie um in big and small roles and it's just like none of it's working none of it's working at all um i i i haven't seen the 2016 ghostbusters but you're talking about like they they have the coverage but there was nobody there like taking charge and leading the jokes and it also doesn't help that they're cutting out shit in between to like like it's just a mess it's just a mess man yeah it's just a mess that's that's really what it comes down to like obviously your humor it's subjective right like it's it's hard right you you maybe you see this movie and think it's funny but it's just like it's just 
it's really sad watching people I know who are funny, like Farley, like Eugene Levy, uh, like Kevin Dunn, who shows up uh, in this movie. Even like Matthew Perry. Yeah, Matthew Perry can be funny in the right context, for sure. I mean, like, we have 10 seasons of Friends to to show that. Uh, Or um, even, it's not a great movie, but even The Whole Nine Yards with him and Bruce Willis is a Mm. better, much better use of what he can do than uh, than this movie, for sure. Yeah. and it just, yeah, it's just, I, I the producer, uh, Denise Denovi said, she's like, yeah, she's like, I unfortunately have the distinction of making the one failed Christopher Guest movie. <laughs> like, but it's just, it doesn't, yeah, it's just, it's none of the pratfalls work. None of the wordplay really works. There's a couple good physical gags I laughed at, but like, oof, just oof. Well, and so I... I wouldn't. I, I'm. I'm a fan of history. I'm not a historian at all. I like. If you were to like ask me shit, there's no way I could like quote you times or anything. I'm really bad at that. But one of the things that I am really interested in is the Western frontier and uh, specifically disasters, mm-hmm. um, the, the Donner Party and, and all that shit is is a, a massive, massive black hole for me to jump into and, and be a huge fan of. And so to to make a movie about the wagon trail west. It is ripe with situations that could lead to so much like like funny shit, and and we'll talk about some of that when we get to like a million ways to die in the West, where they actually start addressing some of that shit and how like it's it's told like a hero's tale, but when you get down to the nitty gritty details of what it was like to be in that time and doing that shit, it was fucking horrifying, and mm-hmm. everyone was having a bad time. So. The, the premise of this movie to be like, we're going to launch from, uh, you know, uh, it they, they didn't launch from Independence, Missouri, which I thought was weird. They they launched from St. Louis, I think, but um, they, they're like, we're going west and this is what we're going to encounter and stuff. And a bunch of this movie takes place in their camp yeah. of them, like, hanging out in tents and having conversations or talking around the campfire or kind of like standing around in a field and there's like there's like one scene where they get caught in rapids like towards the end of the movie like when they've already caught up to Lewis and Clark right. on their trail and they get caught in rapids and stuff and you're like that's a something that you would encounter when you're on the wagon trail west but for like the majority of the movie the premise of the movie is that they're on the wagon trail west and we get like none of that shit so like you took the situation out of your situational comedy and you have people standing around in period gear having a talk and right. it's, it's it's brainless i like it, i i i would want to see this on the page because i don't understand what they were going for i'd love to see if you if we you could find the original script for this somewhere it might be on the internet like we we should look we should definitely look because i would love to read it and see because obviously like i said it was it was a hot script so i right i'm wondering if it just like what was on the page or what the writers envisioned and then what ultimately it reads hit the better. screen it maybe reads better it just needed a different approach I, I i i don't know but it just is like so many of the things where it's just like i'm like this should be funny but it's not like it, it's i i know i've compared it to a lot of other movies but um uh, uh uh one other one i'll compare it to probably will end up on this show eventually probably well not probably definitely in the bad is like you know i'm i'm is deeply saddened that this was farley's last leading star vehicle Mm. 
And it makes me as sad as the fact of something like Year One, which was Harold Ramis's last directorial oh. effort, which that is a terrible, terrible movie. And granted, it's not the American Frontier; it's it's like biblical, you know, era. Right. But it's like, but it's that same type of like, here's a older time period, and then here's like a sort of postmodern like comedic approach, and we're gonna merge the two. And it's it's a similar situation where you're just like, there's a lot of funny people in this movie not doing and saying a whole lot of funny things right (laughs) right like what it's just it's it's like even not even exclusively to the western just doing like a period comedy in a broad sense is like super hard or like your highness the david gordon green one that's that's also a shit shithole i haven't seen i haven't seen either of those and just based purely on the reputation of both of them like everyone that i know who has seen it is like don't no it's terrible it's so bad like it's it's just baffling when you're just like you like more often than not in a comedy like that where like we're going broad and we're going period piece i you just see good good people just 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 flop on the screen and it's it's so hard it's like so if you could pull it off even a just the smidge a little bit it's like you're gonna go a long ways in some of these um oh yeah because the premise is ripe, but like they don't capitalize on it, and and like not just not just the premise, but like the story structure itself. When they get out there, it sets up with I believe it's like a voiceover that starts the movie where they sort of explain Lewis and Clark, but they're like, but there's a lesser known story about uh, Perry and Farley. I, I don't even remember their character names. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> and they, uh, but like. So it kind of sets up that Lewis and Clark are going to be the villains, or at least like the main antagonists of the movie. Right. And then they go out into the wilderness, and then they end up running uh, across uh, uh, Kevin Dunn, who plays Hidalgo, where there's like a, an army of uh, uh, Spaniards, like like w- like Spanish warriors in full breastplate armor and stuff like that, that they encounter in a bar in like a small western town on their way out. And then they have, like, an encounter, and then he sort of, like, disappears from the movie for a little while, and then they get back on the trail for a little bit, and then he reappears later for, like, a final showdown, who, and then he's, like, easily defeated in the final showdown. Yeah, easily. Like, like easily bested, and, like, in a not funny way, like, he's made to look foolish, but it's, like, it's played like a kid's movie, like, it's, none of it is, like, in the movie itself, like, they're dropping, like, they're saying fuck and shit, and, and there's, like, adult situations and that's going on in the movie, and then a lot of the comedy, the pratfalls, uh, amount to, like, a Nickelodeon television show. Like, right. they, none of them are, are played, like, in a very mature, well-thought-out way. And then, of course, the movie sort of ends with them, like, reaching the ocean before Lewis and Clark and planting their flag, and then Lewis and Clark, like, come down the beach at like a far away distance that they see way way off on the horizon and they're like yeah we already planted our flag suckers and then they show like Lewis and Clark and and uh, Sacagawea and everybody else is with them they kind of look like look at each other and like huh. and they and walk they away turn, like they like they kind of like shrug and then they like take off and go back the way they came and it's sort of like okay we're doing like revisionist history where Lewis and Clark didn't reach the ocean first but then like you don't even interact with them at any point in the movie. They don't even have a conversation with them. And and like, it's really weird that the way they set up like these key players and then don't interact with some of them. And then strangely just interject 
uh, the, this like Spanish dude who's really obsessed with like how good his hair looks, and that's his entire character. It's it's so baffling. I I like it, it needed to be like um, I know the movie came out a year after it, but it, it needed to be like the Mummy, like the Brendan Fraser Mummy, where it's like the rivalry between him and like Kevin J O'Connor, like you know who's gonna get to the the site first sort of right. thing. Like it it should have been more like that. Um, yeah. And, and then you get undercut of, of like they're they're having their thing, but then the real threat gets introduced at some point. Yes, and then like your your concentration has changed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, frankly, more movies need to be like the Mummy. I mean, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't argue that fact because that movie is still a lot of fun to this day. Fucking slaps. I was gonna say also awesome. the last thing before we tie it up. You mentioned the narration. A, I wish it came in more, and B, I wish it was funnier, because that's, speaking of the talent, it's Harry Shearer who's doing the the narration, um, who's worked with Christopher Guest and, you know, voiced the, on The Simpsons for many years, and so it's just mm. like, it's like, why is this not funny? <laughs> like, it's, yeah, why yeah, not... Why, that's, that, that, that should be on the, the box for this movie, is why is this not funny? <laughs> it should be, but it's not. This particular event happened last summer on my uncle's farm in Virginia. My brother and I had just finished cutting a field of hay and were enjoying the evening meal under the shade of an elm tree. He went down for water by the creek and while he was gone, I took a bowl that was filled with delicious plum pudding and placed into it not one, but two large pieces of sheep shit. When he, when he returned, I encouraged him to taste the plum pudding. And as sure as I'm standing before you today, he did. He ate it all. Shit pudding. <laughs> he ate shit pudding. <laughs> you got your brother to eat sheep dung. <laughs> Yes, that's a very amusing story. Uh. <laughs> Tell him the ending. That's the best part. Oh, oh, yeah. And to be completely honest, sir, I have no brother. It was me. I ate sheep shit. I swear, I did. Um... Well, let's move on to a movie that's at least somewhat funny. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Funnier than I remembered it being, which made it a, a very clear uh, choice to, to make a swap. Um, a Million Ways to Die in the West, uh, Seth MacFarlane's vanity project that tanked horribly in the summer of 2014. Uh, remember it just like it was yesterday. Um, <laughs> because I watched this movie in 2014 three times. Oh, this is when you were working at the theater, so then like, you had to... Well, a couple yeah, things, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that was part of it. So, it actually, funny enough, ties into both of our past guests that we've had on the show, which we, we should probably have more guests at some point, uh, someday. Yeah. Um, but I I was working at the Cinemagic Theater, uh, which our, our friend of the show, Ryan Frakes, owns and operates currently, and I was writing for a site called gotchamovies.com, who my editor was Jenny Nolf. Um, so... There you go, merging of, of our two past guests. So um, <laughs> we were supposed to run Million Ways to Die in the West at our theater, um, but we hadn't got the bookings. Like, we got our bookings two days late, 
and I hadn't got confirmation yet that we were running the movie. Um, because if we ran something and I was going to review it for the site that I was writing for, I would not go to the press screening because there'd be no need. The key would unlock early. I could watch it and I could have the review out before the movie came out. Well, it was getting down the wire. We hadn't heard anything. Um, and I was supposed to review it because at the time the site I was writing for was not on like getting universal pictures, like press stuff. So I reviewed like every universal movie that came out that summer, including a million ways to die in the West. So it was getting to that point. We didn't get the booking. So I was like, well, I got to go to this press screening. Cause what if we don't end up running the movie and then I end up shit's Creek. So I went to the press screening and then the, like right during the press screening, I checked my email like two minutes before the movie started, got the email from our booker <laughs> that we were running a million ways to time was so i was like oh shit i hope it's good because i have to <laughs> i have to watch it again no matter what um mm-hmm. and then the site i was writing for at the time i caught a blu-ray to review because we were doing like physical media reviews so nice. i watched this movie three times so I, in the year since i was like fuck million ways to die in the west this movie is like really really bad but upon rewatching it not as bad as I remembered. Certainly not as bad as Almost Heroes, but um, I'll give the synopsis and I'll ask what you thought because this is your first time watching the movie. So, And yes, I know I've was. spoken way too much on this episode. I apologize. Fucking um, get it, dude. It's your picks. Um, but in 1882, Old Stump, Arizona, pathetic sheep farmer Albert, played by Seth MacFarlane, is dumped by his girlfriend Louise, played by Amanda Seyfried, after cowardly backing out of a gunfight. After countless monologues to his friends Edward, played by Giovanni Ribisi, and Ruth, played by Sarah Silverman, about how much the American frontier sucks, Albert strikes up a relationship with new-to-town Anna Barnes, played by Charlize Theron, who is really Anna Barnes Leatherwood, the wife of famed outlaw Clinch Leatherwood, played by Liam Neeson, whom Anna is seeking refuge from. And somewhere in the middle, Albert has a rivalry with mustache-twirling Foy, played by Neil Patrick Harris, the original Mr. On My Way to Steal Your Girl. Um, <laughs> so, um, like I said, this is your first time watching the movie. Um, I'll ask not only what you thought about this movie, but what is your history with Seth MacFarlane-related uh, productions, movies, oh. his multiple television shows? Um, like, what what is a bit of your history behind that, in addition to how you felt about A Million Ways to Die in the West? Uh, okay. I, I guess it would make the most sense if I started with my history of Seth MacFarlane. So, uh, I mean, in high school, I was a fan of Family Guy. I think most high schoolers were a fan of Family Guy. It was raunchier Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Um, so that appealed to a lot of people at the time. And then, of course, I also really liked American Dad. Um, I watched, like, a few seasons of that. But then, of course, as time went on, I stopped watching Family Guy. And um, I've seen ted i maybe have seen ted too i don't know if i have but you get an idea of seth mcfarland's uh, comedic style which is uh it's that high school era sort of comedy it, it rarely rises above that in terms of like like what it's trying to achieve intellectually a lot of boners a lot of farts a lot of vaginas there's some misogyny there's some homophobia there's some racism um, this kind of sprinkled throughout none of it really comes across as trying to be intentionally um, uh, uh, like nefarious or, or trying to actually be hateful a lot of it comes across as uh, cheap shots to get a shock laugh uh, like an Anthony Jeselnik kind of approach to comedy um, which you know that appeals to some people not necessarily for me or at least at this stage in my life but 
so going into this movie and you originally putting it in the bad spot i was like okay it's going to be the worst of that type of comedy and it's two hours long okay (laughs) so like i was i was buckled up to be like this is going to be incredibly painful and i laughed far more throughout this movie than i did watching almost heroes now that's not to say that i i thought the movie was good i think it's far from it it's it's mostly problematic um but there are consistent enough jokes that land that throughout the movie i stayed entertained at least and by the end of it i found myself going like if you would have tweaked this if you would have dropped that if you would have added more here you had a a legit like good comedy because i think this unlike almost heroes actually takes the premise of the old west and the time period and plays it well for the comedic effect um i think it just goes too far in a few places or doesn't go far enough in others and then it fills those gaps with uh lowbrow boner jokes um that don't land most of the time yeah and i think that's a pretty solid summation of the movie and and i'll, I'll give my history because similarly to you like i liked family guy in like middle school high school um probably still watching it a little bit in college um mm-hmm. um but definitely like fell off at some point like I, I i still would contest probably and i haven't gone back and watched them so who the hell knows but i'd still contest those three initial seasons before it was canceled and then maybe the first couple when it came back after cancellation are still pretty solid like it's almost like they were it's like he was giving it his all to try and stay on the air and then he was giving it his all when they got back on the air and then it sort of just like tailed off somewhere after that point um i watched american dad for a bit as well um similarly um and i saw both both ted movies um you know i liked the first ted at the time um you know it, it was it was a feature length family guy episode it was pretty much what i expected um but the difference between ted and a million ways to die in the west uh, i mean i i almost applaud this one more because it's a bit more ambitious i will give credit where credit's due it's definitely a bit more ambitious to be doing a a western and it's like the movie has like the big band western music sound and it's um you know it's got the sweeping vistas so it's like it it looks the part It looks good yeah it looks the part for sure um so there's a lot of thought put into the details and and all of that um whereas again it's you know ted is mcfarland voicing a teddy bear and mark Wahlberg getting stone on their couch but that's also in his wheelhouse right um but that was the other thing i was going to talk about is that mcfarland has Wahlberg to play off of and it's like mm-hmm. and i said this when we talked about pain and gain say what you will about Wahlberg as a person um the guy in the right role can be very good and he's especially adept at comedy shockingly um and so in ted they play off each other really well because you have somebody who could do that. Um, and McFarland is not physically present. He's doing yes. his voice work. Uh, he's basically doing Peter Griffin as a bear, um, which for that movie is totally fine for what it is. McFarlane, like, like Matthew Perry in <laughs> Almost Heroes, maybe not as bad, but all, but almost as bad. Actually, I'd say not as bad in performance, but as bad because of the vanity of it. Because McFarland, sure. of course, directed it. He co-wrote it with Alex Sulkin and Leslie Wilde, his, like, you know, kind of head writers for Family Guy. Uh, he produced it, and he stars in it. And he is terrible in this movie. Yep. He is flat-out terrible. Um, on almost every step of the way, every once in a while, he could deliver a good 
because uh, in addition to like the, the sophomoric humor um he does have good timing for certain things like the the way mm-hmm. like like a, a joke will be timed with an edit um you know or something like that or there's just like a or like a smart aside that sounds like like the like brian would say on family guy like right. uh like when amanda seyfried's first like breaking up with them and he's talking about he's got many monologues in this movie about how shitty the american frontier is which again as a gag like you sort of set up like it's a good thing to tackle because this mm-hmm. time was horrible and no movie has really like directly done that at least in a comedic exactly. fashion so i i appreciate that but it but there is that scene in, when she's breaking up with him and he's talking about all the like terrible things and he's like cholera there's cholera now and she's like well what's cholera it's like it's just another uh, mystery of god telling us he loves us there's like he is like a under yeah. his breath line that i kind of like chuckled at so it's like there's moments like that or like his other monologue about how how the west is shitty he's like that's our mayor and it cuts to a dead guy (laughs) i I cracked up laughing at that one he walks outside that's our mayor he's been dead for three days and no one's even checked on him wolves come into the frame and they drag him out of the scene our highest ranking official is been a dead guy or he keeps like no one's no one's inquiry nobody's like trying to take his position our highest ranking official in the city has been dead for three days oh and there's wolves and they, <laughs> and they drag them off screen so like yeah that, like, that i laughed at or at the end of it like someone tells him you know to shut up and he's like you shut up and it cuts to him being thrown out a window immediately yeah. like <laughs> so it's like i i also wish to like it's it, but there's a smugness that's annoying like i wish yes. he would have made himself more the butt of the joke then i think it would have been more tolerable it's like it's like uh it's almost like the Avengers of Ford Fairlane in that way. Like it's mm-hmm. it not as good from the standpoint of like Dice actually has the acting chops to back up that you know persona that you may or may not like versus McFarlane right. does not <laughs> uh, in this situation. Um, but it's that similar where like in that movie you're like ah if you made yourself more the butt of the joke more often this would be much better and it's similar with this movie. I'm like if you weren't so smug and above everything that's happening. I would probably enjoy this more. I need more scenes of you getting tossed out a window or something like that, you know, whereas like this, he's just so like, yeah, yeah, he, 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 he grates pretty quick, but you can't discount necessarily because everybody else in this movie is playing the bit and they're playing it well. I I think the rest of the supporting cast in this movie is really, really strong. And, uh, and I'm obviously he's directing them. So it's like, I can't, sling the guy too much for his terrible performance because he's getting good performances out of out of charlie theron especially who's so good that their love story almost works single-handedly because of her doing right. the heavy oh, yeah. lifting oh she's doing some heavy lifting throughout this movie very heavy lifting oh or you know sarah silverman and giovanni rabisi who have a great like she's a prostitute but they haven't yeah. had sex yet they're, like, they're oh, christians they're christians so, so they're waiting yeah. till marriage <laughs> but her job is a prostitute so yeah there's some some really funny like jokes that are thrown in there of just like of just like uh him like trying to be like well you know have you ever thought about like you know we can like sleep in the same bed you know and she's just like oh like before marriage she's like well you know like like we could just try it out or whatever and she's like taken aback, and then like it just hard cuts to some guy on the stairs. She's like, "I want to fuck," and then she, she's like, "Oh, yeah, coming," and like gets up and starts going to the stairs. Like, there are some like funny asides in there, but I think you you hit the nail on the head there in that. And, and I texted this to you when I was watching the movie. Is, is that this is a black tank top movie? Which I I think that was an RLM uh, uh, 
uh, appropriation, like I the black so. tank, tank top movie that uh, refers to champagne and bullets and John DeHart, uh, him wearing his black tank top throughout the movie, where uh, Seth MacFarlane putting himself in the lead role and being the producer and being the writer and being the director and being all these things, he's so important that the project becomes self-indulgent and he can't make himself look like the butt of the joke because of how important he is to the entire production of the movie and the entire movie crumbles and suffers because of it. Because there are several times throughout the movie where he is in a position where he has a leg up or he is uh, he has information that no one else around him does. People are hanging on his every word and he's never really down. Like, yeah. like even when he's broken up with, it's not like he like he his world is crumbled and people are making fun of him or anything like that. Right. His, his girlfriend breaks up with him and then he immediately starts hitting it off with Charlie's Theron. Yes. Like, dude, you are not hurting. Like you you are doing just fine throughout the entire thing. So like he doesn't so much have an arc as it is like he's at a high point the entire time and his entire thing about his character is that he doesn't realize is that he's the smartest coolest guy in town and then at the end of the movie he goes oh well yeah i am the smartest coolest guy in town and that's his arc but he doesn't start from a low position and get there he's been there the whole time so like it doesn't move the character in a gratifying way over the course of the movie no, it, it doesn't. And and you needed you needed that to carry especially this movie. Like it's it's you can't just hang your hat of gags, no pun intended, on like the, especially when it lasts two hours long. And I, I yeah. and dude, I because because I didn't want to spend money because of that aforementioned Blu-ray review, like I watched the unrated cut, which is even longer than the, the theatrical one. <laughs> I was sitting here, like, as I was looking at my iTunes, because I had the digital copy for the unrated, I'm like, spend three ninety nine to watch the R version, or don't spend any money, but have to watch this for 15 minutes longer. Um, 15 minutes of cut footage? It's two hours and 15 minutes, the uh, the, the unrated version. It's, because the, the, the theatrical cut's already too long. It needed to be, like, way long. 100 minutes, like, at, at most at most yeah. like that's 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 Easy. your movie especially when your movie especially when you don't have when you have a character who's you know pretty insufferable and doesn't have an arc and your whole like sort of like premise of your movie is just like look how bad the american west sucks and how like people can die in all these horrific situations right. or you know like his his mom passes away and they they do a funeral and the doc's like you know sorry i couldn't save her she had a splinter doc. What what could you do? Like right. you know, like like little things like that, where it's just like that's that's your movie, that's your gag, that's your 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 bit. So it's like you needed to be much shorter, or you needed to actually flesh out the character, maybe cast somebody who could um, carry it. You know, I thought of like I thought of Jason Bateman, like not just because him and Charlize would be an Arrested Development reunion, but also just sure. like he has that like he can be likable but he could be totally smarmy and really unlikable at the same time and so i just imagine him like sort of delivering that or even and caught off guard and vulnerable which yeah, is or what's or, needed god or even as sick as i am of, of him who shows up in this movie for half a second ryan reynolds would have been a better like option <laughs> he does have like it. a super he does like super short cameo with no lines it's so which I thought that was funny i did but it's like but it's also weird how like so what i liked about this movie Another thing I really liked that I'll give credit for, it's like you could 
the jokes, your mileage may vary. Like, depending on how you feel about Seth MacFarlane, like, your, your mileage is going to vary in this movie. If you like him, you'll probably at least laugh a few times in this movie. Maybe you'll love it. Who knows? If you hate his comedy, you will hate the absolute ever-living hell out of this movie, and you should probably yep. stay far away from it. Um, but I liked that because of the time period, he didn't, he couldn't rely on, like, pop culture references as a crutch. Yes, there are some in it, but there are not a lot. And so, like, especially compared to any given episode of Family Guy and, and or, or Ted, you know, like, that. so the fact that he had to actually, like, come up with some, you know, other smarter situations instead of just playing on popular culture, I really am impressed with that. However, the Ryan Reynolds thing, there are two callbacks to ted to the movie ted in this at least two that i caught one of them is ryan reynolds being in it because he's the guy who like hooks up with patrick warburton in the first ted movie uh and then there's a scene there like at a at one of the scenes at the bar giovanni rabisi is like sipping his drink and doing whatever weird little dance he does to tiffany's mm-hmm. i think we're alone now from ted and it's just like why are you referencing your own comedy like it's 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 a black tank top movie is why he can't help himself well the only other one i could think of correct me if i'm wrong because i couldn't think of anyone is like is like the is like the mid-credits stinger where jamie fox is django shows up django yeah Yeah, like which i'd like so pointless out of place so pointless yeah and it wasn't even funny where you're like oh yeah django that's all it is, and that he says the line that they already said in the movie, which is people die at the fair. Which, like, yeah. that's also a funny bit where they go to the fair and people are, like, dying in horrific ways. Like, people die yeah. at the fair. <laughs> um, or the uh, the other gag I thought was really good, because he, he, most of his stuff is non-sequiturs. There's not a lot of, like, setup and payoff. But there's a fantastic gag about smiling in photographs, because they yeah. had the photographs that took took forever to take a picture. They're like, did you ever see anyone smile? No, you'd be a psychopath. Yeah, yeah you'd smile. be a psychopath. <laughs> to, like, stand still for three minutes, smiling? Exactly. But, like, it, it became clear, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but, like, watching this movie from the start and having a few good laughs at the start of the movie, um, you know, especially kind of even going back to Giovanni Ribisi and Sarah Silverman, where he's like picking her up at the brothel and the brothels run by Alex Borstein, which, you know, nice to, mm-hmm. nice to see her um, where he's like, uh, you know, she says someone has, has an appointment for, for her to, to do anal. And she's like, Oh, we could afford those cufflinks for you. Yeah. Um, and he's like, so say like five thirty, and she's like, that's not a dentist's office. Like, yeah. Like that's not really how we do things here. He's just going to call when he wants the anal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, I'm laughing already. And so I'm just like, I was like, oh, okay. Like this definitely is more of a what, because it's like, it's not a particularly successful comedy. It doesn't live up to all the promise of its premise. Cause there's a lot right. of promise and it falls short in a lot of ways, but, and you know, obviously McFarlane being the lead in the movie is not, not good, but there's enough right. good stuff here that I'm like, it's not a, a total waste. And it's like, no. It's, it's the type of thing that if he were to keep making movies, I would want to see more attempts at something like this versus like, you know, it seemed like this didn't do well or maybe Universal said you can make this movie, but you need to give us a second Ted movie, uh, sure. yeah. which, you know, which happened. And then even the second Ted movie didn't do that well um, financially. It was sort of just a, I mean, some comedies you just, you can only do once really. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Even though Ted 2 had a couple of moments I remember laughing really hard at. Um, there's a, 
Liam Neeson, who's in this movie, who we haven't even talked about, um, nope. is good, and he he yeah. plays the bit pretty well. He's not like funny in it, but he you know, but he he's not what it needed. He's he, the black hat. Yeah, exactly. Like villain. Yeah, but he's got a terrific cameo in the second Ted movie where he goes to the grocery store with the box of tricks. He's like heard these are only for kids is, is that true <laughs> is that true <laughs> yeah uh no i think you could probably have it i'm taking these <laughs> am i gonna I be i don't want to be followed <laughs> yes see you have you, you have seen the second ted movie you weren't sure i guess i have yeah, yeah yeah you reminded me of it but like you're absolutely right that like the the movie like it, it makes sense why you swap them because at least this one it is a western. There mm-hmm. are good western elements in it. Like we, Liam Neeson is a good villain in it, and he's yep. got his posse. And there is a, a one point where there's a horseback chase scene, and he has to get across the railroad tracks as the train is coming in order to like split off the chase. And like there are elements in the movie that are hearkening back to western movies of yore, but then also parodying them mm-hmm. and also poking fun at the fact that like golden era of hollywood idolized this era for mankind but if you lived in the era it fucking sucked and was a nightmare and that they they use it for comedic effect and so like that it knows what it is and it plays it effectively it's just unfortunate that it 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 went too far up seth mcfarland's own ass yes in order to appease himself and appease like his, his writers and stuff to try and make it more like family guy when you you were on the cusp of making something that could have been a a fantastic comedy movie through and through if you could have just pumped the brakes on yep. a few things. Cut twenty minutes out of the movie, recast McFarlane, boom, right. You got it. You, you gotta... have something that's like like very good, and then like maybe take another pass at that script, and you could have had like a classic. Absolutely, yeah. Get rid of as as funny as it is. Get rid of Neil Patrick Harris shitting in hats. Uh, I laughed. Yeah, I'm only Harris, human. We also have to mention he's great. But. Oh yeah, literally when I said mustache twirling, that wasn't like a, a, a like an adjective. Like he he literally has one of those snidely whiplash mustaches, and he's twirling it's it great. through the movie. And he's he's great. He commits to the bit, and yeah, there's I'm only human. There's a bit where they they have to be in a gunfight, and he's had some you know terrible. What does he put in it? I don't remember what like to upset his stomach. Charlize Theron put like so it's white powder of some sort. She puts into a whiskey, That's... and then she's like, "I challenge you to a drink off," and then he finishes his whiskey. So then the next day he's got he's got dysentery, diarrhea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's the see. It's like it's one of those Family Guy gags that like it starts out funny, goes on way too long, and then it sort of comes back around to being funny. Where it's just right. like he's just shitting in a hat for like five minutes and then like that hat gets full and he's trying to reach for somebody else's hat and he's just like slowly like slapping his his hand hand away (laughs) it's like no 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 (laughs) which like it made me laugh but then at this like while i was watching the scene because it's really weird the way that the whole movie is set up because we see liam neeson we know that liam neeson is like lurking off there somewhere they went to rob a train or they're robbing a bank they're they're doing something so we know that He's going to come back at some point for his wife, who's played by Charlize Theron, and then that's going to be the main conflict of the movie. We know right. that. But the the sort of inciting incident for Seth MacFarlane's character is that Amanda Seyfried has, has uh, dumped him, and then she started dating um, Neil Patrick Harris. And so then Charlize Theron is like hanging around with him because she likes him, but also sort of using it as a ploy to make Amanda Seyfried jealous. Mm-hmm. And then it, it comes to blows for them. But he, like, Neil Patrick Harris ends up being sort of, like, 
this mini boss character and we end up sort of learning that ultimately like he doesn't want to be with Amanda Seyfried and he like gets over that whole thing and wants to be with Charlize Theron so there's really no reason for him to be taken down a peg but like the movie has this sort of mini arc within the center of the movie where Neil Patrick Harris is drugged and taken down a peg in this duel and then they don't actually end up dueling. Nobody dies. The scene just sort of ends with the realization that Seth MacFarlane has that he doesn't actually want to go back to Amanda Seyfried. Uh, he wants to move on to bigger and better things. Right. But, like, it should not have been Neil Patrick Harris shitting in the hat. Should have been Liam Neeson. <laughs> Seth MacFarlane should have been shitting in the hat in that scene. Like, it should have been Neil Patrick Harris drugs him. Yeah. And then he ends up shitting in the hat. He's brought down a peg. And then he has to talk himself out of the situation and he has a realization of like like the lows that he's gotten to. So then now he needs to rise above it. Now he needs to continue to better himself as a human being. But like the the script plays service to his character to make sure that he is never dr- brought down a peg. Yes. And so then it, it's not a character that we have to root for because he, he's got it handled. Nothing ever affects this guy. So Nothing why bad. would I? Yeah. All this bad stuff happens, but not to our lead character. Not to him, because he's too smart. He's too aware of his surroundings. So you never have to worry about your main character. And you want to make a boring-ass story? Write it so that you never have to worry about your main character. Yeah. And I think, to to put a bow on it, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's just like, there's no... There's no mo- narrative momentum in this movie. There's no character momentum in the movie because you know it's all going to work out fine because of right. how the character is written. Um, it's just a, a machine to deliver gags, and some of the gags are really funny. Some of them are really bad, and most of them land somewhere in between, yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah, the um, mass majority of them do. Yeah, for sure. You know, our pastor has shot two people. Our pastor. No. No. Honest to God, shot a guy in a duel and then went back and killed the guy's teenage son because he was afraid he would kill him out of revenge. Wait, how do you know that? Because he did a whole fucking sermon about it. A a lesson about seeing things through. By the way, look at this. See those guys over there? The guys who work in the silver mines? See what they're eating? Ribs doused in hot sauce. They eat hot, spicy foods every meal of the day. You know why? Because their palates are so completely fucking dulled from inhaling poison gas 12 hours a day down in the mines. That's all they can taste. You know what that kind of diet does to your guts? Constipation, cramps, dyspepsia, liver disease, kidney disease, hemorrhoids, bowel inflammation. They literally die from their own farts. And, oh, oh, you want to see more death? All we got to do is get up and walk out the front door. That is our mayor. He is dead. He has been lying there dead for three days. No one has done a thing. Not moved him, not looked into his death, not even replaced him with a temporary appointee. For the last three days, the highest ranking official in our town has been a dead guy. Oh, look at that! Look at that! Wolves are dragging the body away as if to illustrate my point. Bye! Bye, Mr. Mayor! Bye! Have fun becoming wolf shit! Bye! God! That, my friends, is the American West. A disgusting, awful, dirty cesspool of despair, and fuck all of it. Why don't you shut up? You shut up. Um, well, do you have any other thoughts on these movies before we wrap this episode up? Uh, no, I liked I liked these picks, and I liked how volatile it was there for a bit, of, like, texting furiously and being like, City Slickers isn't available. I'm moving almost heroes to the bad, and they're like, oh, shit, like, what is happening? So, <laughs> I... 
I, I liked sort of being on my toes and being able to watch these, but it also sort of was nice to go into each of these with a somewhat fresh perspective of not knowing where they're going to land. Of course, it, with the exception of Cat Baloo, knowing that Cat Baloo was going to be um, the good, but then Cat Baloo, Cat Baloo being such like a classic example of like, this This is a pure comedy. It's, yes. it's not it, It's not absurdist. It's not anything like that. It's, it's not played for slapstick. It's just lighthearted but mm-hmm. in a western package a classic western package and so then you you get a bit of the new and a bit of the old and you bit a bit of this transition and there's something to really appreciate there from like a filmmaking standpoint into something that i i liked as a child at least on the face value only to come into it now with a, a my perspective now and being like yikes this is uh, horrific dog shit, but then getting that backstory as to that you were able to provide, thank you for that, as to why it's, it is the way that it is. Uh, and then coming into this other movie with the expectation that it's going to be the dog shit one, and then going, well, actually, there's a, there's a bit of merit to it, if yes. you can kind of sift through it. Um, it was a roller coaster of a ride, really, uh, for this episode. So I really appreciate the picks. Oh, you're welcome. Like, yeah, like you said, I like to keep you on your toes. But no, really, it was just like it was like, oh god, is this? Are we gonna have to? I was, oh, like, no. I was like, are we gonna have to hail Mary and just do what our next week episode is gonna be? Scrap all of it and just start doing the Elvis movies. But uh, no, I'm glad we were able to to figure it out and uh, bring this episode to you. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Uh, to discuss them um definitely like i said it's an interesting genre it's a really hard one to pull off as as evident yes. by these movies and so it's like if you could pull it off you know effortlessly like cat blue like more power to you if you even get something out of it like a million ways to die in the west you know it's not totally successful but like you said there's some merit to it and then almost heroes is just like it's just sadder because of of all the talent in front of the behind the camera and how it was fumbled but um, you know, at least we get to talk about that and be like, here's how everything on paper that could be good goes absolutely wrong. <laughs> so, right. um, there, there you go. Um, but next week, like I already sort of alluded to, like we even talked about, ne- uh, last week, cause we teased it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be talking about tangential Elvis movies, <laughs> movies where Elvis <laughs> plays, has a big, has a hand in the movie, but he's not actually in it. Well, he might be in one of them. Uh, the movie isn't sure. I don't. Hopefully, I'm not spoiling. Right, yeah, which movie, exactly. <laughs> spoiling which movie that is, but uh, I'm sure people will figure it out. But uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. That'll be that'll be a lot of fun. But oh yeah. In the meantime, you can find all of our episodes on our website at thegoodbadwhat.com. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, mm-hmm. Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, and many others. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thegoodbadwhat, and you can email us at thegoodthebadthewhat at gmail.com. If you're feeling generous and want to support the show, we have a donations tab on our website, and all donations will go back onto the show, whether that's to offset the cost of running movies we discuss or upgrading our equipment. Our logo comes from Michelle Parkos, and our theme music comes from Paco, whose portfolio and SoundCloud link you could find in the show notes, respectively. Chris, where can more people find you online? Yeah, you can find me online on Twitter at thochristo89 or on letterboxd at c underscore t-h-o-m. And you can follow me on letterboxd at ryan underscore oliver. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with tangential Elvis movies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>